Hello. Well, good evening. I want to uh, finish our little conversation on David and Goliath tonight. <clears throat> Last week we looked at the idea that Goliath, the man who is not what he appeared to be, in that in many, many ways, uh, he typifies that which is of sin or that which is of Satan. To the onlooker, he looked invincible. But those with spiritual eyes understand that sin is never invincible. Every giant has an Achilles heel and is able to fall. Then we introduce the idea of Saul, the man who is not what he ought to be. And in this context, Saul is typical of a church which has lost the anointing. A sad documentary, but nevertheless one which is very, very true. The scripture speaks of Saul at the beginning of his life. And uh, it simply says it this way. It's 1 Samuel 9. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing with him was Kish. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. Here was the giant of Israel, which ought to have been the natural counterpart of the giant of Gath. But not only do we notice the size of the man, but look at his mandate, which is also given in verse in 1 Samuel 9. It's him say, anoint, about this time tomorrow, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him to be the Nogid, the commander or the leader. Over my people Israel, he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people for they cry has reached me. This was his reason for being appointed a leader. And that was that he might deliver. And yet, here he had the glorious opportunity. And because he'd lost the anointing, instead of being able to be a warrior and go to war, he's waffling in the tent, complaining, and bemoaning the fact it's the anointing which makes the difference. To look at this story through just natural eyes in the way that Malcolm Gladwell has viewed it is a mistake because any time you miss the spiritual component in any kind of battle, you have missed the reason of it all. We know, it, we know it, was a, it involved a physical expression, but it was more than a physical expression. It was a spiritual expression. And so here we have the first two men, and I want to focus upon the third this, morning, this evening. Here we have the giant, who is not what he appeared to be. We have Saul, who is not what he ought to be, and now we come to David, who was not what they wanted him to be. And I want you younger folk in the, in the congregation tonight to share what I'm about to say. 
It is extremely difficult to live up to other people's expectations or other people's desires for your life. Look what other people wanted David to be. There was his brother, Eliab. He wanted David to be a shepherd. He said, who left, what's that, who's taking care of the few sheep? Few sheep? Who's taking care of the sheep? He said, I know you, the naughtiness of your heart. Eliab wanted David to be a shepherd. Saul wanted David to be a soldier. David said, I'll go and fight that guy. <laughs> and Saul looked at him and said, you can't go and fight him, you're but a kid. In fact, years and years ago, I had an outline for this story. The knight, the king, and the kid. <laughs> and of course, the kid happens to be David. Because the terms that's spoken of here, when, when Saul calls him, you are but a youth. The idea is he just passed the age of a bar mitzvah. He's a, a young teenager. And obviously, uh, he's not all that well equipped. Certainly knows very, very little about war. And so Eliab wanted to be a shepherd. Saul wished that he was a soldier. David wanted to be a servant. He said, uh, you're a servant. But the Lord wanted him to be a sovereign. He'd been anointed to be king. And though it would not happen for Many years after this event, the fact was that the Lord had already appointed him and set him apart. And so I want us to look at the way David approached this incident and see if there are any lessons for us tonight. But let me remind you, do not allow anything, whether it's the past, because your past is not reliable. Whether it's your present, the present is inadequate. Whether it's your peers, because they don't know the half. Maybe your parents, who want to define you. There's only one person who can define you accurately, and that's Jesus. And he has a plan for your life. He has a purpose for your being. And so here is David. He could have listened and said to Eliab, you're right. I better go home to Papa and take care of the sheep. He could have simply said to Saul, you're right. I'll go to military school and take some training. Or he could have listened to Goliath because Goliath wanted to be scrap meat. Come to me, Baba, and I'll give you to the birds. But David refused. And so look at seven things about David. First of all, I think you can honestly say he was conscientious. What I mean by that? He fulfilled his father's wishes. And in so doing, there is an echo here of the greater David because the Lord Jesus, he too fulfilled his father's wishes. In fact, the text reads this way in chapter 17. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out just as Jesse had directed. You might say, that's a big deal. Yes, it is a big deal. What's important about it is this. Please show me. His dad had simply said, I want you to go and check on your brothers. That's all. 
I want you to take some cheese and some food for them, and I want you to take some cheese for the commander, which is a nice way of somebody saying, you know what, encourage the commander to be nice to you, brothers. What's the big deal? This insignificant event and his act of obedience brought David to be in the right place at the right time. What appears to be insignificant events in our lives can have a profound impact on our future. It was not an accident. Jesse did not know what he was doing when he, when he said to David, I want you to go and check on your brothers, except from a fatherly perspective, what know what's happening to his boys. He did not know that he was setting the stage for destiny to be actualized. Do not despise small events. Do them to the best of your ability because you will never, ever know whether God has brought you to the kingdom for such a time as this. To quote Esther, David was in the right place at the right time so that he would be able to fulfill the plan and purposes of the Lord. The stage was being set for the anointing that he had received to be activated. And folk, I have a strange sensation in my heart that God is preparing his church for the anointing to be released. Amen. We have struggled because the church slumbered while the world was active and was involved in diabolical, in, fulfilling diabolical intent. And the church just went on saying, la, 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 everything is wonderful. It's going my way. But the Lord is about to do something significant through the church. And please understand, he used the boy on this occasion. I believe the Lord is prepared to use any vessel which is open to receive and to exercise the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Obviously, that didn't mean anything to you, so let me go on. <laughs> Firstly, he was conscientious. Be faithful in little because you will be rewarded with much. If you can show that you are committed to doing the smallest of tasks, then the Lord will give you a favor to become involved in the larger of tasks. It is a big deal for David to have to go from home to go wandering around looking to the Valley of Elah where the battle was taking place. It's a big deal. He's only a boy. He takes the food with him. He's conscientious. But secondly, look, he's cognizant. <coughs> Verse 20 simply said this. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Oh, I love this. They were playing war games. Every day, they would go to the top of the hill, and then on the top of the hill, they'd give out their slogans and cheer things, ready, we're ready to fight, we're ready to fight, and everything just seemed right. Okay, let's do it. Then Goliath turned up, send me a man. And they all shriveled back in the back. 
It's one thing to be involved in a cheering squad. It's another thing to be prepared for battle. Ooh. I must be honest with you, I prefer being a member of the cheering squad. <laughs> because that's fun. It's great excitement. In fact, Theta sent me an email because the, uh, what's the basketball team? The stars? Uh, the Mavericks. Because the Mavericks, you can tell them I'm a great sportsman. Because the Mavericks are in the playoff, and she said, this is what I have to listen to every day. And it's a cheering squad in which everybody's saying, go Mavericks, go Mavericks, go, go, go. We're going to beat San Antonio. We're going to do this. And of course, that night they lost. <laughs> the bluster of a pre-game doesn't mean a thing. It's not what the cheering squad says before the game begins. It's what happens in the middle of the game. And sure, they were having this cheering squad. They were going to their battle positions, shouting the war cry. It said David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath the Philistine, champion of Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. That's goofball. He was several hundred yards away. You see, anybody can shout slogans. But very, very, very few of understand their ground. Is it possible that the church, that we've been too busy destroying the devil, cursing him, calling him all kinds of names, casting him out, casting him down, giving cause of victory, simply because we were not engaged in the battle itself? Anybody can be a cheerleader. But when it comes to the battle, you need more than cheerleaders. He heard the words. But he not only heard the words, he understood the implications both for Israel. Send me a man. If I win, you become my slaves. If he should happen to win, we'll become your slaves. Ha, ha, ha. It was not only the implication for Israel. David heard something other. The implication for the name of the Lord. A friend, what's taking place in America is not only a disgrace to the morality of our nation, it's a disgrace to the name of our Lord. Yes. America was anointed for a purpose. America was given a mandate and given a mission. And somewhere along the line, we began enjoying the games rather than being engaged in the battle. And as a result, we have abandoned a generation to the world. We didn't think that Thomas Dewey was serious when he simply said, we will take the next generation and change it radically. The church didn't take seriously the Humanist Manifesto number two. How they shared their design and desire for this country. It never happened, it can't happen, it won't happen. Therefore, it's not going to happen to our chagrin. It has. And David was so moved 
by what he heard. David was so moved by the implications of what was taking place. He began asking questions. Church, it's time for us to start asking questions. As far as David was concerned, he kept, on, he kept asking, what's going to happen to the guy who goes and fights this fellow? Well, of course, no one was prepared to go and fight this fellow. But listen to what, the way David said it. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? This is the perspective of the anointing. It's seeing things not in its natural order, but in its spiritual context. David understood the fact. Yes, he was a giant of a man. He understood the fact that, sure, this was going to be a battle, but it was more than a battle for physical well-being. It is a battle for the spiritual well-being and for the outwork of the purposes of God. Obviously, that didn't mean anything. So let me go on. It is a dangerous proposition when we reduce everything to the natural arena. We must never, ever forget the spiritual comp uh, component. From this or any other conflict, and basically this is the weakness of um, Malcolm Gladwell's book. He has reduced it to a physical, horizontal arena and has forgotten or overlooked the idea that there's a spiritual component which is involved, which David keeps on bringing up. Who is this guy who defies the armies of the living God? And it is a dangerous thing to reduce, and certainly a devastating thing, to remove the spiritual con component from anything. David was cognizant of the spiritual component. His questions infuriated some, such as his older brother. But his questions intrigued others. So they took him to see King Saul. And so look at the third thing. He was courageous. Let me give you a statement about courage. Courage is not something you have that makes you brave. Courage is something you earn as you face and persevere in difficult times. Ooh. Ooh. Courage is something you earn as you face and persevere against difficult times. That's why it's easier to be a coward than it is to be courageous. Anybody can capitulate, <coughs> but courage is earned. Standing before the king, this little boy, this young lad, rather than being intimidated or apprehensive, he gives a prophetic word. He said to the king, now please understand, here is a boy, talk the king. He said, king, don't let anyone lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. <coughs> Did you grasp it? Don't let anyone lose heart. Who is he talking to? The king. What's the king suffering from? He's lost heart. He's put out a bounty. I'll give this, I'll give that, I'll give something else. I'll even give my daughter if anybody will go and fight against this guy. Why don't you go and fight against him, giant? Because it's always easier to egg someone else on 
to do the job which you were supposed to do. <laughs> it's always easy to pass the buck on to someone else. You can do it. I know you can do it. I thought the Lord told you to do it. Oh, yeah, but I want to give you the opportunity. <laughs> Initially, he's giving the king a practical word because he's telling the king, don't be scared. Now, understand, it takes a lot of courage to tell the king, don't be scared. You can lose your head for talking that way to the king. If you don't believe me, talk to your boss that way. And then pray that you'll get a new job very, very quickly. <laughs> King, don't be scared. Or to use a good old Texas expression, don't be chicken. <laughs> but he not only gives a practical word, because church... Fear never helps the situation. No matter what the predicament, no matter what the circumstance, fear does not help. When you hear the C word, fear does not help the situation. Don't be afraid, king. The king was a general you talk to, I'm not afraid. She sure look like it. And he's sure acting like it. But then he gives a personal word. I will go and fight him for you. I will go in your place. I will stand where you're supposed to stand. I will do what you're supposed to do. And I'm going to do it in the name of the Lord. And Saul's reaction was one of shock and scorn. Verse 33. Saul said, you are not able to go and fight against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy. That's with the term bar mitzvah is implied. You're just a kid. And he's been a fighting man ever since he's been a youth. That ought to have ended the conversation except for the anointing. The anointing will never accept defeat at the end of the matter. The anointing is persistent. And so David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Why? Because he hath defied the armies of the living God. Saul is not fighting you. He's not fighting Israel. They're not just after our territory. They're after our inheritance. They want to destroy our covenant. And a covenant of grace. He is reminding Saul of the spiritual component because he goes on to say the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine I wish he'd said the paw of the Philistine but he doesn't <laughs> from the hand of the Philistine this is the anointing speaking This is what God hath placed upon his head 
and the Holy Spirit was now thriving this heart. This is the anointing coming forth. Saul, I'll do it. But don't you know, people recognize the anointing. I'm not talking about emotionalism. I'm talking about the anointing. People recognize the anointing and they respond to it. Look what happened to Saul. Suddenly he becomes like a, an assembly of God preacher. Go! And the Lord be with you. As soon as he recognized he had a volunteer, Saul tried to be king again. Now that the, he was no longer going to be involved in the battle, no long, no, while he was no longer responsible for the battle, while he was responsible for the battle, he could be something else. But now that he's got a, a volunteer, he could be king again. And so he simply says to David, let me dress you up like a soldier. Now this is ludicrous. David is a boy. Saul is a giant. Head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. According to the word. And he wants David to wear his suit. The helmet would be too big. The breastplate would go from his chin down to his knees. And he wants him to wear this. And David simply said, having tried to walk around, and he said, I can't go in these. Because I'm not used to them. So having given a practical word, I've given a personal word. Now he gives a prophetic word. He could have said to the king, Oh, king, live forever. If you want this armor to go to war, you are going to have to wear it. Or he could have said, Oh king, this doesn't fit me. And what's more, it's not necessary. That too would be a slight against the king. He simply said, I cannot go in these. Why not? Obviously, this kind of armament was not, was not equipped to be involved in this kind of a battle. Saul was simply thinking of this physical side. David was thinking of both the physical and the spiritual. And so having removed the armor, he takes leave of the presence of the king in order to attend business at hand. I think he skipped, death speaking, not the Lord. I think he skipped and danced his way down the hill to the Ella Valley. I think he was also aware of the fact that as long as he remained on the east side of the stream's ravine, he was safe. There'd be no contact, no conflict, no, conse no consequences. I think both sides watched at this little boy was running down the hill. I think the Israelites looked on with apprehension. They didn't recognize the guy. Who is this fellow? He doesn't look like a soldier to me. I think the Philistines looked on and they liked their chances. You mean this dude is going to come and fight our champion? He hasn't got a hope. And so, that brings me to the next statement. 
Fourthly, we looked at he was conscientious, he was cognizant, he was courageous. Now he's committed. Don't be swayed by the, the Sabbath song, only lad called David, only little sling. One little stone went in the sling, the sling went round and 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 round. One little stone went up, 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 and the giant lay on the ground. The streams ravine, picture in your mind, you got two mountains, or two hills, they're not mountains, like, not, not like Colorado. Two hills. At the base, there's a flat plain. The old English word would be called a dale. And somewhere near the center of the dale, there's a stream. And that stream has a small ravine attached to it. That's why the the historian uses two distinctive words to describe the valley and to describe the, the small ravine. The ravine was the place where the stream flowed. As long as David remained on the east side of the ravine, no conflict, no battle. Goliath could yell and scream and shout and do all that kind of thing, but they were separated because there was no way Goliath could go down that ravine. Wearing all the armor that he was wearing, he would never be able to go down, he'd never be able to get up. And so here was this point of demarcation or a point of separation. But when David entered into the ravine, Goliath knew the gauntlet had been accepted, and so he began moving towards the ravine where David was hiding. While in the ravine, we know that he stopped and picked up five smooth stones. I was sitting at my computer this afternoon, and uh, I must have had too much cheese for lunch. <laughs> because an idea popped into my head. And uh, let me tell you what it was. When David walked into the ravine and began crossing the stream, he could have complained about his lot. So I'm saying, why didn't somebody else do this? Why is it always left for a guy like me to do it? Or he could have celebrated his luck. Now, luck is not a kosher word. It's not in the Hebrew vocabulary. It's happenstance. You might say, what do you mean by luck? There is something about the, geologic, the geological structure of that, of that region that it is common to find stones which contain barium sulfate. And wherever you have a stone with barium sulfate in it, it doubles the density of the stone and makes it more than twice than heavy, than an ordinary stone. And here's David. He picks up five smooth stones with barium sulfate in them. He says, this is my lucky day. Because, you see, having heavier stones increase the odds in David's favor incredibly. The scripture simply says he chose five smooth stones. Now, I don't know why there were five. I know that Goliath had four brothers and they were all giants. Perhaps he had one stone for each brother. One guy said, well, he had five because he was afraid he might miss 
with the first four. That's a lot of baloney. <laughs> One guy simply said, they represent the five pillars of Calvinism. <laughs> but it goes better. They recognize, it represents the five black stones on the piano. <laughs> I don't know why he picked five stones. But this I know. As far as David was concerned, the battle was over. As he emerged from that ravine, unscathed, unhindered, that Goliath had not been able to get there to clobber him as he's climbing out of the little gorge. David knew that Goliath's time was not only linked to hours, it's now linked to minutes. Goliath seen David on his side of the ravine, continues moving towards him. Verse 41, meanwhile the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. That's when he looked at David. He looked David over and saw he was only a boy. And Nahar, ruddy, handsome, and he despised him. This guy's not a soldier. This guy's a kid. But listen to me. David is now on Goliath's territory. He's on Goliath's side of the stream. It means that David had accepted the challenge to fight on Goliath's terrain but he had not accepted the challenge to fight on Goliath's terms. There's a difference to fighting on the enemy's territory and fighting on the enemy's terms. We never fight according to the terms of the enemy. We don't use the same kind of weapons our weapons are spiritual, not carnal to the pulling down. Goliath wanted the battle to be like a samurai contest, close quarters, one-on-one, -on -one, where he could bump up against the guy, push him over, then slam him through with his sword. David was not going to engage in that. David was not a typical warrior. In fact, Goliath looked at David and was disgusted to see that David had no weapons, no sword, no spear, no shield. And so he could say to David, am I a dog? That you come with me with the sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. We are not sure in the way that that term is used in the text where the Goliath is cursing David by his God's liturgy such as Dagon or Baal, Baal or whether he's cursing David by the name of David's God. If he's doing that to David by using the name of Yahweh, then he's a fool. Because he knows from recent history what the Lord of the Ark had done to Gath, had done to Asherod, and had done to the Philistines. But we're not sure whether this brazen nut was either cursed by his gods or by the God of Jew, or the God of the Israelites. I do know this, that the enemy will always go too far. When the enemies of the church in America continues to cast aspersions at the church 
and decry and deride the name of our God, they are going too far. It may not be obvious on Monday morning. It may not be evident on Saturday evening. But you can be sure of this, that their time is numbered. Because God is more than capable of taking care of his name and taking care of his reputation. Goliath's bluster did not face David when I order, even as the Israelites cheerleading didn't inspire him. And so we look at the next phase. Now that he was committed to the task, we look at his confidence. It is clear in the way that David responded to Goliath. He said, you come against me with sword, spear, and javelin. But I come against you. Obviously, David is impressed with Goliath's armament because he mentioned on two occasions in verse 45 and verse 47. He could have said, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you with sling and stones. But he didn't. Why not? Because no true warrior wants to give the adversary unnecessary information. To let Goliath know that he was a slinger would have changed the complex or the way Goliath would approach the issue. Though David was confident in his ability as a slinger, his real confidence was in the Lord. David responded to him, you come against me with stuff, but I come against you. Listen to the way he says it. You come against me with sword and shield, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Yahweh Sevaot, the God of Elohim, the armies of Israel, Mahakot Israel. That's where David's confidence lying. And he goes on to some say, God, whom you have defied, said, This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down. That was a hint. That was a hint. How are you going to strike me down? You don't have a sword. You don't have a javelin. How are you going to do it? Goliath had noted he had no sword, no spear, no shield. But he didn't pay any attention to that small piece of leather hanging from his side. And he did that to his sorrow. You see, the conflict was not about David. The conflict was not about swords and shields. The conflict was about the name of the Lord. But let's look at David, a slinger, for a moment. There is a strange story given in Judges chapter 20, which speaks about slingers or slingmen. The tribes of Israel want to discipline the tribe of Benjamin for an act of infamy. 
And so they gather together to discipline the tribe of Benjamin. And uh, the word simply says it this way in verse 15. And from the cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword. Beside them, the inhabitants of Gibeah, who numbered 700 select men, underscored select men. Among all the people were 700 select men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. That's the ability of a slinger. Benjamin were outnumbered, 400,000 to 25 plus 700 slingers. Note what verse 21 says. The children of Israel, the children of Benjamin came out of Gibeah, and on that day cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. They cut down almost as many men as they had their entire army. That is the power of slingers. Let the guy go forward, they swords and with the sheath like everything, and the slingers would stand behind. Eeny, meeny, miny, Joe. <laughs> I got that one. One down. I'm going to have that one. Two down. 22,000 men fell at the feet of 700 slingers. Here's Goliath. Lumbering armor from head to toe except there's a space for his eyes to see. If a slinger can hit a hare at a hundred feet, there's no way he's going to miss that much. <clears throat> so what the words say? Am I boring you? As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the Philistine. Running toward the giant made Goliath's task even more difficult because now David is a moving target. Poor Goliath had not yet noticed the hanging strap. At the appropriate distance, somewhere between 100 feet to 100 yards. David says, I don't need to go any further. Puts his hand in his pocket. It didn't matter which stone he pulled out, he's only going to need one. He swings the sling, lets it go. to be poetic. Hitherto had no such a thing entered his head aforetime. <laughs> Stone went directly there. Boom. Smashed that bone into his brain. And he falls to the ground. Now, David could have been like the charismatic church. I think I better send you home. Because <laughs> I'm about to say something which uh, I think is shocking. David could have looked like the charismatic church looked. And somebody said, you know, he doesn't look all that bad laying down. 
in fact, I think he would be a great testimony to the power of stones. And so he, he runs and gets a gallon of water and sprinkles him to revive him. Get up, my brother. I didn't mean to hurt you, I didn't mean to harm you, but now you know that you're a believer now. We can walk through life together. That's what the charismatic church did. It had the giant down. But instead of chopping off its head, we want to resuscitate it so we could have a trophy to brag about. If the Lord gives you the victory to knock a giant down, keep him down. It is an act of folly. If the Lord delivers you from drugs, does someone say, well, hallelujah, I'm delivered from drugs, but I can still do it recreationally. If the Lord delivers you from alcohol, oh, it's okay if I have a, a social drink down again. If the dude is down, keep him down. Don't play around with him. David took his sword, cut off his head, and that day, every scary soldier in Israel became a champion. Every scary individual became a victor. Look what we did. Hallelujah. It's okay, David. It's okay. You don't need to do any more. We'll take care of the rest. Because they're running home to mama. We'll just chase them down. When the Philistines saw the champion was dead, they fled. The real thrust of the story of David and Goliath is very, very simple. No giant is what he or she appears to be. They can be beaten. They can be destroyed. Secondly, Saul, the king. It's the anointing which makes you powerful. You lose the anointing and you've lost your authority and lost your power. And the third is David. Be careful the weapons you use Secondly, dedicate your talent. David knew he, he could uh, hit that giant. But he didn't take the credit for it. He said, I come to you in the name of the Lord, the host. God will use your talent. God will use your gift. God will use your ability. But don't brag about the gift. Brag about Jesus. Amen. And thirdly, do not jeopardize your victory through compromise. As the giant falls down in front of you, let him stay down and be thankful for his grace. Anybody here facing a giant? It's not what he appears to be. I don't complain and some say, but I don't have a sword. 
David didn't. Use what God hath given you because the battle is not yours, it's the Lord's. Good night. God bless you. Bye-bye.